As Russia's invasion continues, Ukrainians prepare for another winter of war. A minister of defense of Ukraine mentioned that Russian Federation will focus on striking Ukraine's energy infrastructure in winter. Plus, did Russian President Vladimir Putin give his military commanders a deadline to stop Ukraine's counteroffensive? They've claimed that Shoigu was given a month to halt Ukrainian counteroffensives and start preparations for a Russian offensive elsewhere. The validity of this claim is obviously we cannot prove this. And later in the program, while drones are playing a big role in helping Ukraine combat missile attacks, the technology is also being used to save civilians. Today is Wednesday, September 27th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Russia is accusing Ukraine's Western allies of helping attack its Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Associated Press correspondent Charles de Ledesma begins our coverage. Russia has accused Ukraine's Western allies of helping plan and conduct last week's missile strike on the Black Sea Fleet's headquarters in Crimea. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman, Maria Zakharova, says the strike was coordinated with the help of American and British security agencies and that NATO satellites and reconnaissance planes also played a role. The accusation came the day after video appeared to show that the fleet's commander, Admiral Viktor Sokolov, was still alive despite Ukraine's claims he was dead. Moscow has repeatedly claimed that the US and its NATO allies have effectively become involved in the conflict by supplying weapons to Ukraine and providing it with intelligence information. I'm Charles Diladesma. Ukrainian officials and residents are now gearing up for another winter of war as Russia's invasion continues. I spoke with Anna Chernikova in Kyiv about what's happening on the ground ahead of another season and potential lessons learned. Ukrainians are definitely preparing for an upcoming winter again with the war still going on and with concerns over energy, considering that energy infrastructure has been a common target of Russian forces. What are you learning about preparations and uh, what are officials saying there? Ukrainians actually prepare for a very tough winter. Similarly, as, as last winter, people have already been through this already. So second time is not that scary as first time. Uh, but again, we understand that situation with energy infrastructure in Ukraine is quite tough as well. What we know from recent comments from Ukrainian officials, particularly uh, Minister of Defense of Ukraine, Rustem Umyarov, in his uh, comment to CNN, mentioned that Ukraine is getting ready to these attacks and he emphasized that uh, Russian Federation will focus on striking Ukraine's energy infrastructure in winter. He said that Ukraine will respond to this and also he emphasized that he hopes that multi-role fire deaths will arrive soon and this will make progress for Ukraine and difference for Ukraine in terms of air defense and particularly the defense of energy infrastructure as well. Also, the head of Ukrainerho, which is Ukraine's main energy operator, mentioned that according to the information that they have, Russian Federation will be active again uh, on targeting energy infrastructure and that Ukrainerho substations are protected from missiles attacks both actively by air defense and also in a passive way with engineering fortifications. This is some uh, insights from Volodymyr Kudritsky, who is the head of Ukrainerho. Also, 
previously we've heard that Ukrainian intelligence uh, was reporting on Russian Federation conducting intelligence activities on energy infrastructure particularly and this is uh, something that uh, Ukrainian intelligence sees as preparation to the new wave of attacks on Ukrainian energy infrastructure. As the war continues they're getting a lot more experience in how to deal with these sorts of things before they come up so that's a positive step forward I guess if we have to continue the war. And Anna, you're getting some word that former Wagner Group mercenaries are back on the battlefield in Ukraine to some degree. What are you hearing about that? Yes, actually, the spokesman of the Ukrainian Eastern Group forces uh, mentioned recently that those uh, militants of the Wagner Group who were in Belarus, and according to the information which is coming from Ukrainian border service, there were around 6,000 people in there. So he mentioned that part of those people are back to the eastern front line in Ukraine, and another part went to Africa. However, we're also hearing, particularly from the representatives of the Ukrainian armed forces, in a, in a recent comment to CNN, one of the representatives said that Wagner militants returned to the Bakhmut area of the front line. So uh, this is something also a story to follow, because those militants made a lot of progress before in Bakhmut area. In addition, Ukrainian military said that they do not see the Wagner militants as a threat as they were before Evgeny Prigozhin was killed. So even coming back to the battlefield in Ukraine should not be as a huge threat as it could have been. But we will see how all this will develop. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Thank you so much as always. Thank you. There are unconfirmed reports that Russian President Vladimir Putin has given his defense minister minister a deadline to stop Ukraine's counteroffensive. The Institute for the Study of War cites an insider Kremlin source as saying that Putin wants his forces to launch a separate offensive. For insights into this, I spoke with Katerina Stepanenko, Russian analyst and deputy team lead at the Institute for the Study of War. We've been obviously seeing what appears to be pretty pretty intense ramped up attacks in the past couple days for sure from Russia into Ukraine, particularly attacking and targeting its ports, infrastructure, but really like attacks widespread in many parts of the country. We're hearing reports that Vladimir Putin reportedly has given his defense minister until early next month to stop Ukraine's counteroffensive. Would that explain why the ramped up intensity? And do you have any thoughts on whether that could possibly be the case? So we uh, we have observed a Kremlin insider source. Uh, so those are the sources that don't have an image to them or a face um, kind of discussing behind the scenes of the Kremlin dynamics. And they've claimed that Shoigu was given a month um, to halt Ukrainian counteroffensives and start preparations for a Russian offensive elsewhere. Um, the validity of this claim is obviously we cannot prove this. Uh, we cannot confirm that this is a true speculation. However, in the past, we did see Putin put certain deadlines for his commanders. Notably, uh, last winter, we knew that there was a, a spoken deadline of Russian commanders needing to reach the borders of the Donetsk Oblast um, over winter by April 1. And then we saw a brief command change that followed as a result of um, Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister, and chief of general's 
staff, Army General Valery Gerasimov, kind of be displaced from their authority by other commanders while still retaining their formal position. So this is something that I could see Putin doing, given his previous patterns. However, we cannot verify the legitimacy of this claim. Would those demands, if they are true, explain why Russia seems to be launching relentless counterattacks, even as they uh, come at a steep cost to his own Russian military? Yes, it's something that Russia has historically, um, well, Putin has been presenting this counteroffensive as a as a victory, um, meaning that if Russian forces are able to repel Ukrainian uh, attacks and are able to slow down Ukrainian counteroffensives, then this is already uh, a victory, you know, a battlefield victory for Russia, uh, almost equivalent to uh, a victory during an offensive campaign. So, of course, for, for Putin, you know, ceding any uh, territory might be breaking that um, illusion sort of say, you know, on um, how Ukrainians are operating on the battlefield. So, yes, I, I do think that uh, some some component of this uh, is political, and the political motivation behind that is to make sure to maintain as much ground as possible so that the confidence in Ukrainian forces is eroded. So can the Ukrainian counteroffensive succeed? Uh, it, it, it's interesting because we're hearing a lot of mixed signals. We're hearing that, you know, they have liberated Russian-occupied areas. We're hearing, though, that from others that are watching and concerned that it's going too slow, and the U.S. and European Union and allies are just pouring money in, and it just doesn't seem to have an end in sight. But they also seem emboldened to strike Russian targets. So what do you, where do you see things going as far as the counteroffensive? Yeah, I think the counteroffensive um, has a very steady tempo. Ukrainians are making advances and are um, expanding their breach around the Robotana area in western Zaporizhia Oblast um, and have bypassed uh, some of Russian defensive lines um, that were heavily mined and also were heavily fortified. To kind of discuss the predictions of how this counteroffensive, I think it's still very early to tell. It's something that we shouldn't put pressure on Ukrainians uh, because they're clearly doing what they're capable of doing in the battlefield, given the situations around the defensive lines that Russia had erected over months before that. With the question of whether the the counteroffensive is going to slow down or not, it seems like Ukrainians have been maintaining a very steady pace and Ukrainian military officials have been signaling that they fully intend to continue their uh, counteroffensive operations throughout the winter and that winter conditions are not going to be an impediment given that Ukrainians are using infantry force to advance. So essentially the military vehicles are not going to get stuck in the mud if the infantry force is the one that is advancing. So I, I would say that we, we should be cautiously optimistic. And we also need to think about what the definition of a successful counteroffensive is for us at this point. You know, some analysts might argue that it's uh, the ability to interdict Russian uh, ground lines of communications. Uh, whether they are, you know, the ones stemming from Rostov-on-Don to Crimea is one question. But if Ukrainians are able to even strike the cities in the vicinity uh, of the first lines of defensive uh, fortifications, they already will put a significant strain on Russian forces and their ability to defend previously prepared positions. So there's a question of a definition of what the counteroffensive means. But I also strongly believe that we really shouldn't, you know, 
push a specific timeline, especially around uh, weather and seasons. Uh, given that Ukrainian officials have been fighting this war, uh, they have fought during the winter, they have fought during the spring, and they they are more familiar with um, how the weather conditions are going to affect uh, their pace. Do you, what do you think is emboldening them to, to more consistently strike Russian targets? Well, Ukrainians have always led really successful interdiction campaigns in the past. Uh, we have seen them use HIMARS systems uh, pretty effectively uh, when uh, conducting uh, the Kherson counteroffensive, which triggered Russian forces to cross across the bridge, uh, move all of their military equipment, um, and essentially give up their their occupied territories on the right bank of um, Dnieper River. Um, Now, uh, the interdiction now has expanded to uh, impact Crimea, and uh, Ukrainian forces are targeting uh, Russian naval infrastructure, they're targeting Russian uh, command and control, um, they're also targeting uh, Russian logistics. Um, this is something that is a part of an effective ca- interdiction campaign. Um, it can um, allow Ukrainian forces to um, slow down Russian logistics, um, especially Russian logistics to southern Ukraine um, and specifically Zaporizhia Oblast. Um, so it's a, it's a perfectly sound move for Ukrainian uh, personnel to, to pursue at this time um, of the counteroffensive. We also have, uh, you know, obviously more Western capabilities. Ukrainians have storm shadows that they have been using, and that has been also very uh, influential and very productive uh, for their interdiction campaigns. And lastly, what about this rift that Ukraine is having with Poland over grain? It started with grain, and then we heard Poland is... Uh not going is going to stop providing weapons support is that just because they they don't have enough what is your take on this yes um the russian forces have been setting up conditions in which ukrainian force uh, ukrainians are unable to um resume the black sea deal um and essentially transport the the grain that they produce um to countries um that need it and that creates a strain because Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian um, agricultural sectors then have to export it through and store it uh, in neighboring countries, um, which competes with um, agricultural agricultural uh, sectors in those countries. Um, the problem here is that Russia continues to terrorize Ukrainian agricultural production. Uh, grain terminals, uh, striking port infrastructure in Odessa, uh, making it challenging for Ukrainians to export that grain. Um, so it, it's kind of a, a part of the Russian hybrid warfare scheme where they're setting up conditions that could undermine the unity. Now, I do want to preface that Polish officials had walked back their, their um, statements um, about um, providing military aid. And they've clarified that what they actually meant was um, that they're going to continue to work on the military defense contracts that they have with Ukraine, but they will not be providing uh, weapons that they purchased for themselves to restock and replenish their own military. Um, so it's it's a very important distinction, and uh, both Ukrainian and Polish officials are signaling that, no, everything is still intact. The, the relationship is as strong as ever. Um, the, the more of a question was uh, about Poland sending uh, their own material that they just purchased to restock their uh, their army after 
um, sending Ukraine military weapons. Any final thoughts on where this goes leading into the winter? The Ukrainian counteroffensive has uh, a, a whole uh, possibility of continuing through the winter as long as Ukraine receives the support that it needs, uh, primarily through weapon systems, through air receiving air defense systems, um, continuous uh, provisions of ammunition. I, I believe that Ukraine has the, the capacity to continue this uh, throughout the winter and uh, broaden their breaches um, and make significant advances into Russian-occupied territories. Katarina Stepanenko is the Russia deputy team lead and analyst at the Institute for the Study of War. Thank you so much for taking the time to provide us with this important analysis. Of course, thank you so much. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. Russia said last week that it had temporarily banned gasoline and diesel exports to all but four ex-Soviet states in response to domestic shortages, a move that will disrupt global trade that has already had to adjust to Western sanctions on Russian fuel exports. Russia eased some of those restrictions this week, but analysts say importers will still have to find alternative sellers until Russia can replenish its own stocks. VOA's Kim Lewis spoke with Jorge Leon, Senior Vice President of Oil Markets at Rystad Energy in London. We've seen an increase in upside price pressure on oil prices in the last three months. Just late June, oil prices were around $70 per barrel, and today prices are around $95, $94 per barrel. So a significant increase in oil prices. And this is a result of two things that are pulling in the same direction. The first one is that oil demand remains resilient. Despite the fact that there were some macroeconomic headwinds in China, for example, despite the fact that we have high interest rates in the West, when we look at actual demand of oil, it remains very resilient and very strong. That's, that's one element. But I think the most important element actually comes from the supply side. We have had Saudi Arabia controlling tightly supply in the market. They implemented voluntary cuts of a million barrels per day in July. Then they further extended those cuts into July and September, or August and September. And just three or four weeks ago, they announced that they were going to extend even further those cuts until the end of the year. So resilient demand and tightly controlled supply, both are playing in the same direction, meaning higher oil prices. How has Russia's war impacted oil prices and inflation? So I think that Russia's war has indeed impacted, particularly last year, oil prices increased by around to around $120 per barrel because of the geopolitical risks. So most of that impact that we saw at the beginning of the war has already uh, faded out, I think. Now, um, Russian production seems is relatively stable. Uh, it hasn't declined, but also it hasn't increased, so relatively stable. So I think that the impact that we saw on oil prices at the beginning of last year, when the start of the war, um, it has faded out. And now the, the, the Russian in, the, the impact on, from Russian war has diminished significantly. What is the relationship between Russia and Saudi Arabia regarding oil? 
Well, both nations are part of the OPEC Plus Alliance. This is an alliance of 23 countries, oil-producing countries, and Saudi Arabia and Russia are the main, the, the two biggest oil producers from that group of 23 countries. So as part of the OPEC Plus group, they um, manage supply, uh, in order to make sure that the market is is adequately supplied. Now, what has happened in the last year is that both Saudi Arabia and Russia have pledged to cut production, um, especially especially Saudi Arabia, yeah, a million barrels per day, but Russia half a million barrels per day, and and they continue to play that active role managing the oil market. The demand for fuel has increased since the COVID pandemic with people now back traveling worldwide. So what can consumers expect in the future regarding the high price of traveling? Of course, um, traveling, as, as we know, is highly sensitive to, to prices, particularly the aviation sector, uh, more than the road transportation sector. So I currently don't think that oil prices, higher oil prices will have a significant impact on oil demand prospects. Now, if oil prices start increasing above 100 $110 per barrel, then that is a different storyline. But I think right now, $90 per barrel, I don't think that that's going to prevent many people from traveling. That was Jorge Leon, Senior Vice President of Oil Markets at Rystad Energy, speaking with my colleague Kim Lewis. Ukraine has been using drones for reconnaissance and attacks since the start of Russia's invasion. But sometimes combat drone operators use them to save civilians or even capture the enemy. Anna Kostuchenko went to the Donbass region to find out more. This drone strike is one of many for combat drone operator Andri, whose last name VOA is not using for safety reasons. Andri says his unit eliminated about 200 Russian soldiers in the Bakhmut region in just a month. My partner is doing reconnaissance work. I'm responsible for drone strikes. It means when the target is detected, it's my job to knock it down. We eliminate between 5 to 10 in Prior to volunteering at the front lines, Andrei had been a trained boxer for some five years. Right before Russia's invasion, he was preparing to compete in the Kyiv Boxing Championship. It may look like boxing is simple, but it takes a lot of time to these moves. After joining the attack aircraft complex Achilles in March 2022, Andrei found his new vocation. His unit's mission is to conduct reconnaissance operations so that the infantry can proceed safely and destroy the enemy's forces and military equipment. We eliminated many tanks, self-propelled guns, and manpower. We often perform our tasks with the enemy's aviation firing at us. It's tough, but we do our job. Drones are sometimes used to save lives, Andrei says. During an air reconnaissance mission near Bakhmut, he noticed two civilians attempting to evacuate an area within range of Russia's artillery. The commanding officers decided to save them. Another time, Andrei says he saved a Russian soldier. 
Побачили в траншеї, яка посіяна повністю вагнерівцями, і де солдат. Не якісь там ханига, одягнені там з каліматором, там вони бігали в той день, а там три розрахунка літають. Тобто одна бомба там точно по нього прилетіла. Ми його не почали нищити, по ньому видно було, що він в шоці. Він йде, дивиться на ці трупи, і без зброї, і благає, отак показує, що я без зброї. Йому друге життя дарую. Андрій каже, що планує боротися за свою країну, поки війна закінчиться. Анна Костюченко для ВОНЮС Донбас регіон України. І це буде робити для нас сьогодні. Залишайте відповідати з відповідальним відповідальним на Україну і новини з усіх світу 24 години в день на voanews.com. І на соціальних медіях відповідайте на VOA News. На участь всіх нас тут, ми дякуємо вам дуже за дослідження. I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, bam, 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 zip, D.C.